2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. This week on Face the Nation, there is breaking news this morning as the second coronavirus vaccine ships out. And overnight, Congress moves closer to getting billions of dollars of COVID economic relief to Americans right before Christmas. The vaccines are here and more are on the way. Across the US, healthcare workers and the elderly are rolling up their sleeves. We'll have the latest on the supply and the demand as American hospitals and ICUs continue to struggle with a flood of coronavirus cases.
1: Make no mistake about it, it's a medical miracle.
2: A miracle, yes, but it's also a complicated process.
1: It's one thing to get the vaccine delivered to X number of spots around the country.
3: It's a very different
1: thing to get the vaccine out of that tube into a syringe into somebody's arm.
2: As predicted, there are hiccups with the distribution process, leaving some states confused about just how many doses they'll get and when. One message that is clear from doctors and government officials, get vaccinated.
4: Some of my people back home have called me and said, uh,
3: we're scared to take the shot because we don't know what's in it. And I tell them, I ask them, do you eat hot dogs? You don't know what's in a hot dog either but you got to trust somebody.
2: Surgeon General Jerome Adams and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb will join us, as well as the head of Eli Lilly, David Ricks. We'll ask him why the company's therapeutic drugs aren't getting used as hoped. Then, as President-elect Biden puts the finishing touches on his cabinet, we'll talk to incoming White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, about the staggering challenges facing the new administration. As if a coronavirus pandemic and a recession Aren't enough, the U.S. is also under a massive cyber attack. We'll talk to the CEO of FireEye, the cybersecurity company who discovered the hack, Kevin Mandia. Plus, the economy. What's the prognosis for recovery in 2021? The head of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank, Mary Daly, joins us. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. The typically joyful season comes in one of the country's darkest moments. Seventeen and a half million people in the U.S. have been diagnosed with COVID-19. One in 250 were diagnosed with the disease just last week. More than 300,000 have died over the course of this pandemic and experts are predicting that cases have not yet peaked. The healthcare system may be overwhelmed in the next few weeks, pushing hospitals and medical professionals to their own breaking points. Additionally, a major cyber attack is underway, posing what government officials call a grave danger to both government and private entities. But as we come on the air this morning, there is hope. A second vaccine manufactured by Moderna is being shipped to all 50 states. Congress has also resolved a major sticking point with that long-delayed COVID relief bill that would provide more than $900 billion in badly needed economic aid. We begin today with CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman reporting from Atlanta. Three, two,
1: one. Vaccination elation, drive through lines in Reno, rolled up sleeves across America. To millions, it's the most coveted Christmas gift. This is the
5: beginning of the end for COVID.
1: As the Pfizer vaccine arrives in places like Austin, more help is on the way. Early this morning, Moderna began distributing its newly approved vaccine. Vice President Pence promoted these shots as safe and effective, but this is 2020. They're also divisive, griping from governors about deliveries. We're certainly frustrated
6: that we won't be receiving the amount that we expected in the first wave. The
1: head of Operation Warp Speed apologized for what he called a miscommunication.
4: There is no problem with the process. It was a planning error, and I am responsible. And pushback
1: from anti-vaxxers. In one survey, 42 percent of Republicans don't want one. And talk about the vaccine's timing, COVID is on a record rampage. America had one million new cases in five days, more than 3,600 deaths in a single day, and more than 113,000 COVID patients are in hospitals. In Los Angeles, someone dies of COVID every half hour. Overwhelmed hospitals create ICU wards in parking lots and gift shops. For those jobless Americans who need a pandemic lifeline, Congress could vote later today on a $900 billion relief bill. It includes $300 more a week in unemployment benefits and $600 stimulus checks for families making less than $75,000 a year. Close to 8 million Americans have fallen below the poverty line since June. Here in Georgia, as we reach Christmas week, the virus is both in a surge and a siege. Ask local hospitals
2: and food banks. Margaret. Mark Strassman, thanks. We wanna go now to the Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Dr. Jerome Adams. Good morning to you.
5: Good morning, Margaret.
2: Before we get to what's happening here in the US, I want to ask you about this news overnight that a number of European countries are now shutting down travel from the UK because of a new strain of the coronavirus. What do we know about the threat it poses and do our current vaccines work against it?
5: Well, very important for people to know that viruses mutate all the time. And that does not mean that this virus is any more dangerous. We don't even know if it's really more contagious yet or not, or if it just happened to be a strain that was involved in a super spreader event. Right now, we have no indications that it is going to hurt uh, our ability to continue vaccinating people or that it is any more dangerous or deadly than the strains that are currently out there and that we know about.
2: When people hear shutdowns elsewhere, they worry about things happening here, are you just saying we don't really know yet the details of this latest strain and and how lethal it could be?
5: Exactly. The most relevant point is that it doesn't change anything we've been telling you. It just further reinforces the fact that we need to wash our hands, uh, wear our mask, watch our distances, keep our household gatherings small. Because if this is a mutation that is more contagious, then that just means that we need to be that much more vigilant while we wait to get vaccinated.
2: Uh, I want to ask you about the current vaccine distribution. Uh, Pfizer, which has its vaccine already out there, uh, shipped out about 3 million doses last week. But according to Bloomberg's data and The New York Times, there were uh, about 170,000 inoculations. The CDC has that number a little bit higher at 272,000 actual shots in the arm. Do you expect the pace to pick up?
5: I absolutely expect the pace to pick up something I've said all along to people is that this is going to be the most technically logistically difficult vaccination uh, project of all time and it's why we have career officials like General Perna uh, very good man uh, the best in the world working on this. And we we started slow. We're going to continue to increase. So the American people should be hopeful uh, about vaccines, but we also need to remain vigilant.
2: But uh, General Perna, who you just mentioned there, runs the logistics and he somewhat apologized, taking responsibility for the problems in the past week with the rollout of vaccine to the states. Should there have been more uh, hands on role played by Uh, health professionals like yourself in the logistics? I mean, was this just poor planning by the federal government?
5: It absolutely was not poor planning. And I want the American people again to know that the numbers are gonna go up and down. There's what we plan, there's what we actually allocate, there's what's delivered, and then there's what's actually put in people's arms.
2: You've been outspoken about your concern regarding communities of color in particular. Um, COVID says black Americans are dying at nearly two times the rate of white Americans. It's a COVID-19 tracking project. The Kaiser Foundation says 35 percent of black adults say they definitely or probably would not get vaccinated. How are you going to persuade the black community in the throes of this crisis to overcome that?
5: Well, I'm the United States Surgeon General, but make no mistake about it. Uh, I'm a African-American. I grew up poor, black, rural. I know that long before COVID, there were many diseases, hypertension, cancer, diabetes, that were plaguing communities of color. And COVID just unveiled those disparities that have been around for a long time. I've talked previously about the, the history uh, of, of mistreatment, of Communities OF COLOR, THE Tuskegee EXPERIENCE, THE TERRIBLE TREATMENT OF HENRIETTA LAXES AND HER FAMILY AND HOW THEY JUST TOOK herself WITHOUT HER PERMISSION. Uh, WE NEED TO UNDERSTAND THAT THAT DISTRUST COMES FROM A REAL PLACE. IT ACTUALLY COMES FROM MY OFFICE. Uh, SEVERAL SURGEONS GENERAL OVERSAW FOR 40 YEARS THE Tuskegee STUDIES WHERE TREATMENT WAS DENIED TO BLACK MEN. AND I WALK PAST THEIR PICTURES EVERY SINGLE DAY WHEN I GO INTO MY OFFICE. SO BELIEVE YOU ME, THIS LEGACY IS IMPORTANT TO ME. And, and helping restore that trust is important. We've had many uh, people involved in the review and actually as study participants of color. And what, what I want to tell people most of all is uh, I walked the talk. I got vaccinated on Friday. Mm-hmm. I actually feel great. You know, my mother-in-law and my mother uh, are watching and they've been asking me all weekend, how are you feeling? I feel great. And uh, I hope people will get the vaccine based on information that they get from trusted resources because it's okay to have questions. What's not okay is to make poor health decisions based on misinformation.
2: But that same study from uh, the Kaiser Foundation shows that this vaccine hesitancy cuts across Racial lines, it also cuts across political ones. But I want to drill in here because the highest amount of hesitancy about taking the shot is from Republicans, 42 percent, according to Kaiser. Uh, Rural residents, 35 percent. Wouldn't it help to persuade those Republicans if the Republican president himself came out to try to persuade them to take the vaccine? He says he's so proud, he fast-tracked. Do you have plans to have President Trump get a shot in the arm on camera?
5: From a scientific point of view, I will remind people that the president has had COVID within the last 90 days. He received the monoclonal antibodies, and that is actually one scenario where we tell people maybe you should hold off on getting the vaccine, talk to your health provider to find out the right time. But that so doesn't make you aside, immune. There is a medical reason.
2: That doesn't make oh, yes, you but immune. Yes, politics
5: aside. Well, it does not, but we know that monoclonal antibodies, if you've been administered them, actually uh, are a potential reason why medically we would tell you to hold off on the vaccination.
2: Okay, so if he can't take the shot, which you're saying is for medical reasons, you think, why doesn't he at least come out and do the public service announcements to the people who voted for him, who trust him and the vaccine he says he's so proud of?
5: WELL, uh, I APPRECIATE THE QUESTION AND I WOULD REFER YOU TO THE WHITE HOUSE. I CAN ONLY SPEAK FOR ME. I GOT VACCINATED. THE VICE PRESIDENT GOT VACCINATED AND uh, PLENTY OF uh, REPUBLICANS LOOK AT HIM AND SEE HIM uh, GETTING VACCINATED AND I HOPE THAT PEOPLE, We'll talk to their trusted health providers uh, and get the information they need to make a, a, an appropriate choice to help us reopen our economy and to get back to normal and to save lives.
2: And lastly, uh, in other communities of color, I, I want to ask you in particular, there's concern about undocumented residents in this country. If people aren't legal citizens, uh, what is the guidance? Do governors have to make the call on whether or not to vaccinate them?
5: I want everyone to hear me, no one in this country should be denied a vaccine because of their documentation status. Because it's not ethically right to deny those individuals.
2: But is it ultimately up to the governors to figure out how to do that, how to get people to feel comfortable, to come out of the shadows, to get a shot in the arm?
5: I want to reassure people that your information when collected to get your second shot if you get the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine will not be used in any way, shape or form to harm you legally. Uh, That is something that I have been assured of. And uh, we tell people that all the time when they need to come in for emergency care or public health care. So we're going to work with states and local officials and trusted organizations to make sure everyone gets the information they need and feels safe coming in to get vaccinated, because that's how we end this pandemic. That's the good news. There is a light at the end of this dark tunnel, and we just need to keep running to it.
2: Thank you very much and have a great holiday.
5: Thank you, Margaret. I appreciate it.
2: We turn now to the incoming White House Chief of Staff for President-elect Joe Biden, and that is Ron Klein. Good morning to you.
4: Good morning, Margaret. Thanks for having me.
2: Do you intend to keep Operation Warp Speed intact when you take office? What changes will you make to vaccine distribution?
4: You know, we are reviewing the progress of Operation Warp Speed and the ways in which we can structure the vaccine distribution most effectively. We'll have something to say about that shortly after the first of the year. We're certainly going to build on the good things about Operation Warp Speed, but also try to be more effective in managing this vaccine distribution program. I agree with something Dr. Adams just said. The program that's before the country to try to vaccinate hundreds of millions of Americans in a few months is one of unprecedented complexity, unprecedented expense, unprecedented technical challenges. We're gonna put in place the right people and the right process to do that. It's great that about 200,000 Americans have been vaccinated in this first week, but 200,000 is a long, long way Mm -hmm from hundreds of millions of people. That's where we need to get to, Margaret.
2: We go now to former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's also on the board at Pfizer. He joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you, doctor. As you know, COVID presents many challenges, many of them also technical for live television. So we hope to continue that conversation uh, in a moment, but I'm really glad you're here to answer some of these outstanding questions. On on the sheer numbers alone, the CDC uh, is predicting about 75,000 more deaths during the first week of January. How much are Christmas gatherings going to add to the strain we are seeing on the system right now?
7: We saw a spike coming out of Thanksgiving. If you look at the analysis done on a state-by-state basis, there was anywhere between a 10% to a 40% increase in cases off of the baseline going into the holidays. Now, some of that was just the sheer um magnitude of the virus building but some of that was a consequence of the gatherings as well which potentiated more spread we'll see it coming out of this holiday it does seem to be the case that we're on track probably to peak in terms of the number of infections somewhere around the first week in january so we have three more weeks of increasing infections we'll see a peak in infections, we'll start to see a decline. But once again, the healthcare system's gonna continue to see a burden well past the peak in infections because there's a delay in time to hospitalization and also a delay in time to death from COVID. So after those infections peak, we'll continue to see deaths start to continue to increase for another three weeks.
2: Another three weeks. When we spoke to the Surgeon General, uh, he indicated the CDC is still trying to get information about this new strain of the coronavirus that's been detected in Europe, and it's just prudent planning to act like it's already here in the United States. Uh, What do we know about the lethality of this strain?
7: Well, it's probably not more lethal, but we don't fully understand um, its contours. There was a question of whether or not this, there is a new variant, and there's a question of whether or not it's become the predominant strain in London because of what we call Founders Effect. It just got into London and got into some early super-spreading events whether or not it's the result of what we call selective pressure. It's being selected for because it has qualities that make it more likely to spread. Increasingly, it does seem to be the latter. It seems like this new strain is more contagious. It doesn't seem to be any more virulent, any more dangerous than run-of-the-mill COVID. The next question is, will it obviate our natural immunity? So will people who had COVID from the old strain be able to get this new strain, or will it obviate our vaccines? And the answer is probably not. Um, This virus mutates like all viruses, flu vaccine mutates, flu mutates the most, and what viruses do is they change their surface proteins and once they do that, the antibodies that we've developed against those surface proteins no longer work. Now flu mutates very rapidly, changes its surface proteins very rapidly, so we constantly need to get a new flu shot. Some viruses like measles don't change their surface proteins and so the measles shot we got 20 years ago still works. Coronavirus seems somewhere in the middle. It's going to mutate and change its surface proteins, but probably slow enough that we can develop new vaccines.
2: Well, for the vaccines we have, as I know you've been watching this closely, uh, there was a bumpy rollout this week, um, to be generous here. General Perna, who is the logistics head of Operation Warp Speed, said it was his fault Um, But there was a lot of finger pointing that happened over the course of the week between uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary blaming Pfizer, Pfizer saying that's not their fault. What exactly happened? And is the bottom line that it is fixed or can it be fixed?
7: Well, I'm on the board of Pfizer, as you know, they're running a careful process, and so what they're doing is they're calling up the companies on, let's say, Tuesday, and I believe it is a Tuesday, and they're saying, how many doses do you have available for shipment next week? And they're doing that because they want to give the states maximal visibility into what they're going to get, and the companies do what's called lot release, so at any one time they have a certain amount of vaccine available, but as vaccine comes off the manufacturing line, it's constantly getting released. And so what they'll do is they'll let vaccine sit for a period of time and then they'll do testing on it to make sure it's stable to make sure it's sterile and so on tuesday companies will have a certain amount of vaccine available and they'll report that to the government but then on wednesday thursday friday saturday and sunday more vaccine becomes available but the amount that they'll ship will be based on that tuesday total so there is vaccine that's in the warehouse now that vaccine's not going to be lost it's going to be shipped the subsequent week You know, my view has been from a public health standpoint, we're at the peak of this pandemic right now. Um, Protective immunity is important to get out there. A vaccine that's delivered next week is going to probably have a bigger public health impact than a vaccine delivered five weeks from now. So we should be leaning forward and trying to get as much vaccine out as possible. What they're trying to do is give maximal visibility to the states so the states have predictability. But the consequence of that is that there is vaccine that's in the warehouse that won't be shipped next week, but will be shipped the subsequent week.
2: All right. So it's coming. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you very much for, for, for jumping into the breach and giving us your great analysis. Uh, we'll be right back. We've got Ron Klain back and hopefully able to hear when we return.
8: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
2: We want to pick up where we left off with incoming White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, um, and thank you for sticking us sticking with us there. I hope, of course, in the new year we can have a conversation in person. Um, but in the, in Indeed. the in the COVID world, I want to ask you uh, to finish your thought, um, and that was about. Christmas and the vice, the the president-elect still attends mass indoors in person. What is his guidance to Americans who want to worship that way?
4: Look, I think the guidance is to do it very carefully. I think that uh, the mass he attends is uh, sparsely attended. Uh, They control the number of people who go. Uh, He wears a mask. I think it's important for people to uh, be careful. I mean, look, The most important thing he can say to everyone right now, while we're waiting for this vaccine to be available, is for people to mask up, to practice social distancing, to be careful, to wash their hands, to do all the things Dr. Adams was talking about. Uh, People uh, need to celebrate the holiday. They need to mark these important events, but we need to do it in the most careful way possible, as responsibly as possible. Uh, That's what he's been doing, and that's what he encourages others to do.
2: Have you been briefed yet on this new strain of COVID?
4: Uh, we have not yet been briefed on it. Uh, we're supposed to get briefed uh, next early next week on this. Uh, I, obviously, we're going to respond to this with uh, expertise from okay. science and medicine. Uh, we're gonna take whatever changes we need to take in the, res- in the re- approach, if there need to be changes, based on what the experts, the medical experts, advise us.
2: I wanna switch gears to talk about this massive hacking of the federal government and private entities. Um, the transition team has had some level of briefing on this. Is there any doubt that Russia was behind it? It's
4: to disclose this information, Uh, in terms of uh, who gets the blame. Uh, We should be hearing a clear and unambiguous allocation of responsibility from the White House, from the intelligence community. Uh, They're the people in charge. They're the ones who should be uh, making those messages and delivering uh, the ascertainment of responsibility. Uh, Instead, what we've heard is one message from the secretary of state, a different message from the White House, a different message from the president's Twitter feed. Uh, We have been briefed on this, but again, I think in terms of publicly communicating the position Mm. of our government, that has to come from the current government, and it should be coming in a clear and unambiguous voice.
2: Well, the president-elect was pretty clear when he spoke to my colleague Stephen Colbert on CBS earlier this week, and he was asked about Russia, and he said they'll be held accountable. He said they'll face financial repercussions for what they did. Uh, Is that no longer the case? He no longer believes it's Russia?
4: No, what I'm saying is that the official uh, statements about who's responsible for this particular attack needs to come from uh, the uh, administration in a clear and unambiguous way. Uh, What the president-elect has also said, uh, clearly, Margaret, is that those who are responsible are going to face consequences for it. And he's going to take steps as president to degrade the capacity of foreign actors to launch these kinds of attacks on our country.
2: So Senator Mitt Romney said this morning the Russians potentially have the ability to target U.S. utilities and cripple the U.S. economy. Is that your understanding of what these hackers have the ability to do right now and are sanctions as far as the president-elect is willing to go?
4: Well, so I think there's a lot of uncertainty still about what the purpose of these attacks were. Were they espionage-oriented? Were they designed to inflict damage on us? I agree with Senator Romney about the capacity of foreign actors. I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the purpose, nature, and extent of these specific attacks. And we're looking, looking forward to learn more about them. Uh, I think in terms of the measures that a Biden administration would take in response to an attack like this, I think I want to be very clear. It's not just sanctions. It's also uh, steps and things we could do to degrade the capacity of foreign actors to repeat this sort of attack, or worse still, engage in even more dangerous attacks.
2: Okay. Have the two? I'm hoping you can. And still- now,
4: Margaret, I've lost you again. <laughs> I'm sorry, but. The connection's been all uh, right. severed once again.
2: The, all right. Uh, just when we were, I was I was going to ask you a, a follow up there. But uh, Ron Klain, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm sorry to our viewers for the continued technical problems on that. But we are lucky because we do have our next guest here. Um, and that is on the topic of COVID-19. Uh, you all may remember that when President Trump was diagnosed with COVID-19 back in the fall, he was treated with a therapeutic antibody made by a company Regeneron. Pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, makes a similar drug that has been distributed to states across this country through Operation Warp Speed. This morning, we're joined by their chairman and CEO, David Ricks, he's in Indianapolis. Good morning to you. Morning, Margaret. We wanted to talk to you about your treatment with monoclonal antibodies. Because we learned this week that while taxpayers have purchased about a billion dollars of it to treat patients, only a fraction of it is actually being used. And we're in the throes of a crisis. Why isn't this being prescribed more?
6: Well, it's, uh, it, it's disappointing news that we heard as well. Um, I can tell you that um, across the country, we've shipped and distributed broadly the monoclonal antibody from Lilly. And then in our clinical studies, it reduces the risk of hospitalization by about 70%. So it's very important that those eligible talk to their doctor about getting this therapy. What we have seen though is differences in how different states and different hospital systems have chosen to act. Some really good cases where it's quite easy uh, when your doctor recommends this to get the infusion. It's an infusion. Uh, It takes about two hours. Um, And we've seen cases where there's been little or no action. Um, So it's important uh, people know to ask their doctor uh, if they're a candidate for this therapy.
2: And when you say infusion, you mean someone has to go and get hooked up to an IV to treat it. um, Correct. But I I want to follow up on something you just said, because it's similar what the Trump administration has said over the course of this week, which seems to put the onus on the patient to tell their doctor (laughs) what to prescribe them. That's not usually the doctor-patient relationship. Um, If we accept that the premise, and it's our job to tell the doctor to prescribe us, um, how soon are they supposed to ask for it?
6: Well, I'm not suggesting it's only the patient's responsibility, so let me come back to that. But the drug is indicated in the first 10 days after a positive PCR test, a a, a confirmation of COVID-19, and within that 10-day period, you could receive the infusion, and it's been shown to reduce symptoms, reduce the viral load, and keep people out of the hospital. But we're also communicating with, with um, hospital systems and states. Because this is an emergency use authorization, uh, unlike other approvals for drugs, um, as a manufacturer, it's, it's not our role to go promote this. Uh, right. So we're working through government channels uh, to do that. And as I said, it's quite variable. There's some great examples, but there's also some areas of the country where it, It doesn't seem to be available when it actually is.
2: Right. And it's sitting on the shelves, we know, because Operation Warp Speed has said there are about 65,000 doses that go out each week. Five to 20 percent of it's actually being used. And this is Mm. these are therapeutics that American taxpayers already bought. Um, So if the states aren't using it or certain states aren't using it, should the federal government claw it back and give it to those who are actually using it?
6: Well, every week we're shipping more. So uh, the way it's working now is we're being directed by the Warp Speed team to distribute through uh, a third-party distributor to those uh, facilities that are using it. Uh, and so we're replenishing those supplies now. And there's many good examples in Houston, in the state of Maryland, uh, they've done a great job. In South Dakota, um, even after their very difficult fall, they've they've distributed um, a- enormous quantity of what they've received. So we're acting at the government's... Um, a direction here and supplies are being replenished. Um, I don't think there's an attempt uh, to bring that supplies back from hospitals. Rather, what we'd like hospitals to do is use what they were sent. Set up an infusion clinic where patients with COVID-19 can receive this. And I think we all know, coast to coast, um, this is not a time to uh, leave leave that important tool on the shelf. This is a time to put it to work against the patients who are suffering.
2: Right, but what what you're hinting at there is one of these challenges we're seeing again and again is the disconnect between what the federal government is delivering and what the states do when they receive it. And we know hospitals are overwhelmed. So this is a big public uh, health policy issue that needs to be addressed. I'm wondering if you think what you're seeing happen with therapeutics is an indicator of what's going to happen with the vaccine. Are states also not going to be able to distribute it?
6: Well, I'm, I'm not an expert in that, but I can say this is a complicated problem that needs focus and attention from governors and hospital system executives. That seems similar uh, to the vaccination challenge. Here we'll have uh, we have about a million doses we'll have produced this year, getting those into the hands of hospitals by mid-January. Uh, on the vaccine side, we need hundreds of millions uh, administered. So those mm-hmm. operational challenges—we're doing something new for the first time. Right. It's not simple. It needs focus and attention, um, and and from the hospital on up.
2: Absolutely, um, and and at the time of a crisis, quick action. Are you going to require your own workforce to get a vaccination?
6: We've discussed this. Um, I don't think there's going to be a problem at a science-based company like Eli Lilly to convince people uh, to get vaccinated. In fact, I think they'll be quite aligned. It's not our turn yet. It's important that frontline healthcare workers and the elderly uh, receive the vaccine first. We totally support that. We do have um, uh, manufacturing sites that make unique pharmaceuticals that if they can't operate, uh, patients can't receive those medicines. So we're working with the states we operate in um, to see where in the priority we fall. And then we'll do a strong uh, internal communication about the benefits that's already started actually of vaccination. And I suspect most people who work at Eli Lilly will get vaccinated, but it will be their choice. Um, One of the considerations Mm -hmm. here, Margaret, is it's an emergency use authorization. We don't have the normal full uh, set of data. And if uh, uh, an employee of ours is concerned, we'll respect that concern.
2: All right, Uh, well, good luck to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And we'll be right back to talk about that massive cyber attack.
9: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: And we are learning more about what may be the worst cyber attack in history. It's affected uh, many organizations, including federal agencies. Kevin Mandia is the CEO of FireEye, a cybersecurity company that protects clients against malicious software and investigates hacks. His company was the first one to discover that this massive breach happened. Good morning to you.
3: Margaret, good morning to you.
2: The Trump administration has described this as an ongoing attack uh, and poses Mm. grave risk to the federal government, to state governments, to private institutions, critical infrastructure. Mm. It went undetected for nearly nine months. How should the public understand this? How significant is it?
3: Right. Well, there's a lot of ways to look at this intrusion. And first and foremost, it's different than other ones that we commonly respond to. We respond to over a thousand breaches a year. And what separates this is who did it, how they did it, and what they did when they got in. And I'll get to the who probably last, but when you look at the how, market, that's what makes this totally unique. This was not a drive-by shooting on the information highway. This was a sniper round from somebody a mile away from your house. This was special operations, and it was gonna take special operations to detect this breach. So the, how they did it was in a way that was utterly clandestine, very difficult to tell. And quite frankly, it was a backdoor into the American supply chain that separates this from thousands of other cases that we've worked throughout our careers.
2: Does it go back further than March? How long have hackers been inside the system?
3: Well, so right now what we've observed with this latest campaign, first I think this threat actor wasn't a one and done. What I mean by that is I think these are folks that we've responded to in the 90s, in the early 2000s. It's a continuing game in cyberspace. You know, there's a time in our lives where the domains that we had espionage in or the domains that we had combat in or differences in were land, sea, air, then space, and now we have cyber. This is just one campaign in a long battle in cyberspace. But this campaign specifically has the earliest evidences of being designed in October of 2019, when code was changed in the SolarWinds Orion platform, but it was innocuous code, it was not a backdoor. Then sometime in March, the operators behind this attack did put malicious code into the supply chain, injected it in there, Mm -hmm. and that is the the, uh, backdoor that impacted everybody. I think, Margaret, it's important to note, everybody says this is potentially the biggest intrusion in our history, the reality is the blast radius for this, I kind of explain it with a a funnel. It's true that over 300,000 companies use SolarWinds, Mm -hmm. but you come down from that total number down to about 18,000 or so companies that actually had the backdoor or malicious code on the network. And then you come down to the next part, It's probably only about 50 organizations or companies, somewhere in that zone, that's genuinely impacted by the threat actor.
2: I I want to come back to that in a moment, but attribution. Mm -hmm. Secretary of State said it's Russia. Sure. Uh, Republican senator who heads the Senate Intelligence Committee said it's increasingly clear this was Russian intelligence. Do you agree that this was Russia, and what evidence do you base that on?
3: Well, I think that is definitely a nation behind this. You just heard me say the attack started with a dry run in October of 2019. This wasn't a ransomware attack, not a drive-by shooting where somebody breaks in and it's kind of like a brick through your window and it's pretty obvious, hey, they broke in with a brick through the window and then they stole your jewels. This is more like a case where somebody came in through a trap door in your basement that you never knew about, put on an invisibility cloak and you just got the sense there in your networks, but you weren't even sure how. You were like, there's something different right, right now. Something's been But moved. you know better than and anyone took, that there yeah. are
2: only a very few number of nation states capable mm-hmm. of what you are describing in terms of skill. Russian intelligence, right. specifically the SVR, has repeatedly been pointed to by officials. Is that who you believe did this? Right.
3: I think this is an attack very consistent with that. I also believe this. We're going to get attribution right. The amount of resources inside the government, inside the private sector and the reach that we have, we can speculate it or we can do some more work and put a neon sign on the building of the folks that did this. And I'm very confident as we continue the investigation, as it gets broader, as more people learn the tools, tactics and procedures of this attack, we're going to bring it back and we're going to get attribution, not 92 percent right, not consistent with. Uh, but hundred percent let's just get it right, right so that we can proportionately respond period
2: right and, and it may take time to do that uh, but I, I press you on attribution because obviously if, if you want to stop it from happening mm-hmm. again you actually have to identify who did it in the first place and the president kind of muddied right. those Absolutely. muddied those waters yesterday when he said it may be China the media is overplaying mm-hmm. it downplayed the idea it was Russia I'm not asking to weigh in on politics but um, how do you stop this from happening again? And was right. it,
3: Well, clearly, do you yeah. have to
2: specifically target one country? How do you do this?
3: Well, I think you have doctrine. That's why we have doctrine for things like the use of chemical weapons. You saw what happened when somebody used chemical weapons in Syria, there was retaliation. Folks have to know the rules of the game. And the problem in cyber is we're not doing the work to come up with the doctrine. If you publish your doctrine, we're uniquely vulnerable in cyberspace. We're the ones in the glass house. These attacks will continue to escalate and get worse if we do nothing. So, you know, just as a cybersecurity profession, I recognize if you don't communicate the rules of the game, here's the doctrine and here's the penalty when you violate it we're gonna see the borders continue to be pushed outward in cyber attacks Mm -hmm. to the point where when do we finally do the work? When it's already intolerable, when it already got so bad that we have no choice but to respond. But like you said, it starts with doctrine. With doctrine, you have to get attribution right. And with attribution, then you have to do proportional response to whoever the actors were.
2: All right, Kevin Mandia, thank you very much for your insight. We go now to the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, Mary Daly. Good morning to you.
8: Good morning, Margaret, and thank you so much for
2: having me. I would love for you to just give us the bottom line here. We know Congress has pumped in $4 trillion into the economy to help with the pandemic. They're about to possibly pass about $900 billion in aid. Will all of this make a significant difference in propping up the economy?
8: Absolutely. This support is unequivocally beneficial. If you think about where we started in March when COVID hit our shores and where we are now, it's really remarkable that the economy has done so well. And that is speaks to the resiliency of the American people, but of course to the significant support that the Federal Reserve and Congress have taken to ensure that the bridge through coronavirus, over coronavirus, is both strong enough and long enough to get Americans fully through this.
2: In this $900 billion emerging deal, it looks like Congress will not provide help to state and local governments in terms of financial support. What impact do you think that will have on the jobs market going into 2021?
8: Well, when I think of state and local governments and state and local communities, these are just a community of people. And so the direct support to individuals, to households, to businesses in those communities really does help state and local governments because they don't have to provide as much for their citizens their citizens are getting the income support they need and importantly businesses are getting the loans and funding that they need so that they can keep people employed so i'm i'm bullish on the job market once we get fully through coronavirus but we're not there yet so our future is bright but we've got some challenging months ahead of us as we continue to battle coronavirus
2: so it sounds like you are projecting job cuts at the state and local government level in the months to come?
8: So far, I'm not seeing evidence that there'll be job cuts. Remember that many of the services that state and localities provide are education and police services and social services. And right now we really need those services. So what I'm feeling is that programmatic uh, cuts are are being discussed, but right now we haven't heard of people cuts yet. Not in the areas that I serve.
2: Yet, um, last last issue on politics, which I know you're an apolitical institution, but the Fed itself was at the heart of the standoff between Republicans and Democrats. Um, and that s- hurdle seems to have been overcome late last night. It appears that the deal would allow for the Fed to retain its ability to set up emergency lending programs without congressional approval, but block it from replicating programs like it set up in the spring. Um, is the bottom line here, for the American people at home, is the Fed affected by this? Can you still respond in an emergency, or do you feel like your hands are still tied?
8: So, I'm aware of those conversations. I'm not part of those conversations, but let me tell you what's really important. We have powerful tools, and we're prepared to fully use those tools to support the American people. So, for all your listeners, we are prepared to conduct monetary policy, to be the lender of last resort, and I feel ready and prepared to do just that. And this new provision wouldn't change that? Again, I'm not aware of the specifics of that. I don't think they've laid out the specifics yet, but I... I'm, I believe completely that Congress, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Secretary, the American people really want us to be able to deploy our full tools to the best of a benefit. Remember, these are emergency tools. We only bring them out in times of crisis, right. and then we put them back away. And that's what we're continuing to do. That's what we're prepared to do in the future.
2: You're a labor economist. You know a lot about jobs. Uh, in this latest report we got, it looked like like there was improvement. But then when you look inside the numbers, it shows that there are a lot of people who've simply given up looking for work. That seems particularly acute among women. Why do you think that is?
8: Well, look, women are really in a bind. Many women still are the primary caregivers in their homes, and we have homeschooling now. So women are being forced to make this really hard trade-off and return to home, give up their careers, give up their jobs in order to make sure that their children are, are well cared for and can get the schooling and education they need. I mean, parenting is also essential work, and these women are taking on that essential responsibility because they don't have the normal school child care or child care more generally in the wake of covid, but COVID um, and coronavirus. So we really are going to have to kind of come together to get past COVID, think about how to get these women back in the workforce and back contributing in the way that they really want to, to do both their child care, their parenting, and their vital work. Is
2: this long-term damage to women?
8: It could be if we don't get uh, focused on what do we do to get out of this. I really think some, this is a good time to think about national child care policies, the understanding that we shouldn't really force people to make trade-offs between family and work. Mm-hmm. We should really think of work-life integration. How do we do both? How do we do all the things that are important to us? Yes. That's really what our nation will demand.
2: And that's a conversation we will have to continue having. Uh, thank you, Mary Daly. We'll leave it there for now. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. We all wish you a Merry Christmas and happy and healthy holiday season. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams, incoming White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks, FireEye CEO Kevin Mandia, and San Francisco Fed President and CEO Mary Daly. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
8: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
9: Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every
8: episode.